just past 7 o'clock and another big show on tap for you tonight. It's time for Ira on Sports. Here on the True Oldies channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. And Ira is finally starting to get back in the swing of things. I almost feel like we're not still kind of in the middle of a pandemic because we're getting back to some normalcy with sports. And it's really exciting. We had a couple interesting live sporting events this yeah. week with, between golf and UFC and horse racing and auto racing. And you're just, it's right. It's like almost you're in the ocean. You see that wave coming and it's ready to come. <laughs> we're ready to get like NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball. It's coming right mm-hmm. now. It's like, so if you have other stuff you want to do, you want to enjoy some weekend days and not just sit and watch sports all day. This is maybe when you should do it because in starting in August, you're going to have a lot coming on. And, and you know, it's, it's crazy when you think about it that that it's been so long since we've had anything and that we're just a couple of days away from being back to basically everything. We run out of time as it is on this show. I don't know how we're going to fit all these sports in uh, once they get back. But we do have a great interview coming up in about uh, about 25 minutes or so. It's Craig Hodges. Tell us about him. A star for the Jordan for Jordan's Bulls when mm-hmm. he played in the NBA. Ten-year NBA veteran. So we can talk about the last dance with him. We're also going to talk. He was one of the best three-point shooters in the history of the NBA. He won three three-point shooting contests against the Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Reggie Miller, <laughs> Some stiff so just, a, just a, a great guy to have on the show and talk about and everything. So it, I, I'm real excited to have Craig on the show. So let's first uh, let's get into golf first, and maybe you want to mention here what happened with the fact that we couldn't get this live. It was very confusing, I think, to everybody. Confusing. I mean, I'm screaming at I, I can't find passwords. First of all, I love golf. I want to watch it. I, I was I could not get this golf. I'm sitting at the beach throwing my things everywhere because I could not get it because you either have NBC or CBS. Mm-hmm. So between the two of them, when you see with it for, for the NBA, they say there's ESPN broadcasting and TNT that you'll know where it's coming up. There was no way to figure out who was having yep. this CBS or NBC. I'm so confused. I couldn't get on. I'm paying for both. I pay for all these services. This is pathetic. Golf has got to get their act together. You only have two networks broadcasting, which is NBC and the Golf Channel or CBS. Figure it out. And, and then when you have a match that's delayed, so it was, it was actually not delayed, it was, it was brought up till nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. So everybody's confused. They don't know when this is on. They're showing it. It was a mess. I, the Golf has got to get this figured out. And it's impossible. They want people to watch it on their computers, but then make it easier for people to watch it on their computers. Yeah, the whole thing was just bizarre. And, and in a time where all eyes are on you, you should really have your game right And you have here. one of the greatest mat- golf matches I've seen in it years. It was a good Sunday. And nobody can watch it, and I'm afraid to text people about it because I don't know if they're watching it live or not watching it live, and I don't want to spoil the ending, mm-hmm. and I have nothing to do. I'm just watching this <laughs> all alone on a beach. So let's talk about it, though. It was a heck of a Sunday, Ira. Tell us about uh, the workday. Well, in terms of, the, it's a workday charity. It was in Murrowfield in, in Ohio, where they're going to play the Memorial the next week, and it's the fifth golf tournament, and the winner was Colin Maracaro. Now, Colin Maracaro is is this great young player from from uh, University of Cal Berkeley, uh, along with Victor Hoglan and uh, and Wolf from last Matthew Wolf from last week are like the three 2019 young guns. And you saw remember Colin Cara, the first uh, comeback to the tournament. He lost in the playoff to uh, um, Daniel Berger, mm-hmm. and this one he was able to pull out in a playoff against Justin Thomas in just a, a crazy crazy situation. It was just it was his second pro tournament. He won the Barracuda. But look at Maracara. He's been a 24 tournament since he turned pro. He has two wins and only one missed cut. He was had a, a streak of 22 tournaments where he didn't, uh, didn't miss a cut. And Tiger has the record of 25. Mm-hmm. He has 22. So not thinking that this is a guy that's going to be around for a long time. It's great to see these young golfers play. And for Justin Thomas, just bitter, bitter, bitter sweet for a tournament <laughs> that you thought you had. And just to lose it like that. And we'll go over the ending. I want to go over on Sunday. But And the other one that I thought was just amazing to watch is that on, on, uh, on Friday, missing 
watching the cut. Jordan Spieth, the cut is going to be probably minus two or minus one. Spieth is sitting there on the next last hole at a par three that everyone is trying for birdies. He double bogeys the hole and then he misses the cut. And Brooks Kefka was like plus five going into the final like seven holes of of the tournament. Way out, never going to make the cut. He has six birdies and he misses the cut by one. So that was one of the (laughs) two that that was interesting that would happen. And one other thing that they did that Nick Watney missed the cut. Nick misses the cut, but he played in the tournament even though he has COVID-19 because he two weeks ago he tested positive for it, but then he was became had some, no, no symptoms. Mm-hmm. And they actually let, even though he was still testing positive, they let him play. I wonder in the rest of the sports whether that's going to be something that's going to happen because supposedly you'll stay positive for a while, but you have no symptoms. It's past the 14 days. Are they going to let players keep playing? So that's sort of something we should look for in the future going to. But really it was a three-player three, three uh, player tournament. It was Justin Thomas, uh, Morikara, and Victor Hovland were the three. Mm -hmm. And then they were paired on Sunday as the final three, starting at 9 o'clock. So tell us about um, Sunday, because this was back and forth, and it was super exciting. Well, first of all, you you text me, it's like, oh, well, Thomas was away. And if you would have woke up around, I would say, 12 o'clock and saw where the the tournament was, you're like, well, that's what you expected. Mm -hmm. You didn't realize that Thomas would start the day two shots over Hovland, three shots over Morikawa. He hadn't bogeyed a hole in 55 holes. He suddenly bogeys two and three. Morikawa birdies three and two and four and Eagles five. Suddenly, Morikawa's at 17, Hovland's at 17, and Thomas is at 14. He's like out of the tournament. Mm. So how do you go from being, <laughs> here's a guy who's like perfect thing and goes out of the tournament and then suddenly Morikawa's just started making pars and Thomas from eight to 11, he had four birdies in a row and then he suddenly jumped to 18. So then you're going into, and then at this one point on par, at the 15th, par five, Thomas had a 25-foot putt for Eagle. So at that point, he's at, and Hovland fell back. So at that point, he was at 21 at the 15th hole. Three holes to go, and Morikawa is at 18. So he has three shots. And so if you looked at the Crazy. tournament on the 15th hole, 16th hole, you'd say, okay, Thomas was up two, three strokes a day. He's up three strokes now. Must have been a very boring thing, not seeing the up and downs that was going back and forth. Totally missed it. But then, <laughs> then Thomas bogey 16, and Morikawa pars. But then Morikawa birdie 17, Thomas just pars. And then you go to the 18th, Thomas made a total mess of it, and Morikawa was able, Thomas missed the 10-foot putt where he had to make for a par, and Morikawa misses his marker actually could have won it on 18 mm-hmm. so he makes the putt so they have to go into a playoff and the playoff on that first one was the first hole they reback and they go play play 18 thomas hits it in the rough morikawa hits it in the sand trap they each hit it on the green on this a par four morikawa is 25 feet away thomas is 50 feet away and i've been watching golf my whole life i don't remember anyone winning a golf tournament on a 50 foot butt no thomas Puts it in from 50 feet. It's over. But Morikawa goes and matches it at 25, 75 feet from putts. So then they go for the next sudden in the in the next sudden death hole. They go back to 18 again, and they both missed. I mean, Thomas missed from 10 feet. Morikawa missed from 20. And then finally on the third hole, Thomas hit his drive behind a tree and uh, ended up losing it. But what? I mean, it was just to see the 50 foot putt and the 25 foot putt go in is just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was like uh, it was like watching Sunday Masters with the <laughs> level of competition that we uh, we got taken yesterday. What's next for golf? Uh, they play the uh, Memorial next week. And this is going to be like a major feel because everyone's going to be Tigers, Rory. Every single golfer is going to be there. It's always known as Jack Nicklaus tournament. So everybody shows up. But this year, I think this is going to be this is going to be one of the best fields, of course, of the year. And it'll be great. And then they have a week off and then or they play three in Minnesota. Then the World Golf Championships, uh, the PGA Championship in San Francisco, and then the Tour Championships. So there's only like six or seven more weeks of golf left. But next week's Memorial, if you're into golf, I mean, this is and golf 
golf, I would have moved the PGA up more because they're going to suddenly not have this window mm-hmm. where they can talk uh, golf all the time. So I would, but it's going to be great. Next week's tournament's going to be amazing. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, author Craig. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, former NBA player Craig Hodges uh, is going to join us here in just about 15 minutes or so. What's going on with NASCAR? Well, there was the Kentucky Motor Speedway and Cole Custer, uh, the first rookie winner in four years. I just know that in the, I mean, I watched like the last like 30, 40 laps of the race, two laps to go. They had a, re, a restart. They went four wide and it was out of the movies in terms of four wides, in terms of uh, Ryan Blaney was went inside. Then it was Kevin Harvick, Mark Driggs Jr. And then Cole Custer was on the outside and Blaney goes over a drainage thing because it's like they're spread out on this track. There's no room. It's almost like they're mm-hmm. running through and he crashes right into Kevin Harvick. Harvick then bumps into and then Blaney's, you know, goes back and Custer speeds right through and then they just, it was so exciting to see watch the end and it was a great win for that. And then this week, Bristol Motor Speedway has on Wednesday a race, and then there are Texas on Sunday. So it's still good in terms of watching some NASCAR races before there's going to be a zillion sports on on the weekends. So, Ira, we got to see the debut of Fight Island, and I would say Dana White would be pretty happy with how everything um, turned out. I lost a little bit of cash on this one, but all in all, I mean, most of these fights were pretty darn good. I'm sorry. I thought Masvidal would do better, yeah. and I think I, I and I should have picked Usman, and I, I feel like bad I gave you. Like, during the <laughs> while I was watching it, and you knew that Usman was going to win this fight, mm-hmm. And Moswell didn't have a chance. I felt like I gave you really bad advice, no, so I apologize. It, it, no, it, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, it, Usman's odds were not good to bet on anyways. You know, it's not worth betting $100 to win 40 <laughs> So, you know, you, you take your chances there. But you did know after the first round, Masvidal really didn't have a shot there. But they put they put five fights on. I mean, that's one thing that boxing can't do. Boxing has that one match, and now the other ones are terrible. The prelims are terrible. This one had Paige Van Zandt versus Rebus in the first round, the, the two uh, in a women's fight. And that was exciting. I mean, Paige Van Zandt's a very popular social media star and Rebus was able to take her judo black belt take her down in the first round armbar win and then the strawweight match was two of the best female uh, uh, UFC fighters Jessica Andre and Rose Namajadas and uh, that was that it was like came down to 2-1-2-1 two, one, two, one. I mean it was like so close that when the winner was like it could have been e- Rose won but it could have been either one that's how tight that was and then the bantamweight the, the, between Jose Aldo the former champion versus Peter Vaughn first three rounds I thought Aldo looked great but then Vaughn started dominating and that's mm-hmm. the one fight where they said it should have been stopped, but the refs let Peter Vaughn still go and keep dominating that fight. And then, then it really got good. That featherweight championship match between Alexander Volkanovski and Max Holloway. Now remember, Volkanovski beat Holloway in a, in 2000 for December uh, to take the title, and Holloway has this huge height advantage. But it was like one of those fights where Holloway won the first. You thought Holloway won the second, third could have gone either way. And Alex won the fourth. It was every round was so close and they were just so evenly matched and they were grappling and striking. It was just like one of those perfect uh, matches. And Alex ended up winning and retaining mm-hmm. the title. And I'm like, it could have gone either way. It's like yeah. you could not be upset with that decision. I had it scored the other way. I, I thought Holloway got the win. I thought one. too. I tweeted out that I thought Holloway was wrong. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, still, it was such a great one. And I think at least the good thing about UFC is I think losses don't hurt you do like in boxing or some other things. Oh, you have a loss. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. He'll, Holloway's made, he'll be back fighting. Let's talk about um, uh, Usman and Masvidal just real quick. It's going to be tough to beat guys like Usman. They're just technically, they do everything right. They don't make mistakes and put themselves in positions to lose. Well, he fights like Khabib fights in terms of he'll just grapple you. And if you want to be a boxer and a striker and do those things, then he just grapples you. And then it, it just you cannot get these shots out. And, and everything, you know, people thought that Masvidal would be flying. And he had a couple that first round. He was going crazy, leg kicks, punches, everything. But then once Usman got his hands on him, he just wouldn't let him go. And it was just like for the next four rounds. That's what people thought was sort of 
boring. Of all the matches, it might have been the most boring ones. I just because he was dominating Masvidal. But you got to give Masvidal credit. He took it on six days' notice. He cut weight, lost twenty pounds, flew over Crazy. there, handled it well. I mean, that, it, that's that's like that was great. It was great to see it. And Usman is you know won six string straight fights. He's one of the top fighters in the UFC. One of the top fighters of all time, and just getting better and better and better. Another great win for him. Let's talk about uh, horse racing. Another uh, another edition of me losing money over the weekend. <laughs> so I had a really good feeling about Art Collector. I thought he was going to go off maybe like six to one, and then when it got bet down to about three to one, I said, you know what, this isn't isn't worth it. I put in a pick five and hit three of the five, and then two seconds. But all in all, this was a, a pretty decent race, and I think Art Collector will be a contender once it comes time for the Derby. Remember, this bluegrass stakes used to be up before the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, so it was a qualifier. Remember, the remember, we ran the Belmont, so we're also confused. You <laughs> it's like in a time warp, but when everything is. But what was interesting about this race was that Swiss Sky Driver it was a filly, and mm-hmm. she was supposed to uh, be one of the top fillies. Only three fillies have ever won the Kentucky Derby. Uh, winning colors, genuine risk, and regret. And so Swiss Sky Driver is one of those where people felt had a good chance to, mm-hmm. to win. The, and then our Collector, everyone was talking about our Collector, but it never won really a stakes race. It was it won these allowance races, whatever. So this was a big win for our Collector to come. It was a good race, and there was they were toe to toe in terms of those two horses in the blue in Lexington. Um, and the Derby odds right now is Tis the Law, the Belmont winner. We saw him down the Florida Derby is three to two. Honor AP, the San Anita winner, is the second favorite. And then maybe like Art Collector, I saw was twenty to one. So Art Collector is still a fairly good, uh, you know, still get good money for him in the Derby. Yeah, and that's one of those things when it, if we do get the twenty horse field like we're supposed to, and hopefully we can get Brittany Yurton or someone like that back on to talk about it when we get to it. It's really tough to bet these three to two tis the laws in a twenty horse field. So my strategy will be the art collector that you know the type where you can get eighteen to one, twenty to one, and have a live shot at, in a twenty horse field. Right, right. Let's move on to the MLS. We can bring in our intern Harrison. So Harrison, you were watching soccer all weekend, and we're only going to talk about a little of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> tell, so yeah. MLS is back, and so tell us a little bit about Inter Miami because they played their first game ever. Oh yeah. So last Wednesday, a lot of excitement. Inter Miami, their first game. Uh, since March 7th, just the third game in the history of the franchise. This is one of the most exciting games, playing their their newly appointed rivals, Orlando City, playing in Orlando to start off a big tournament. And Miami scored pretty early in the game, early second half. Uh, it was uh, Juan Agudelo on a beautiful cross, 47th minute. First goal ever. Yep. No, they scored once against D.C. United on March 7th. Oh. But Chris Mueller uh, leveled the match off a Nani cross in the 70th minute. And then us new um, Miami fans had our hearts broken in the 97th minute when Nani scored right at the end. Nani, a former star with Manchester United and also some stops with Valencia. Got the win past Robles to win for Orlando 2-2-1. How do you get how do you get your heart broken in your first game? I mean, we're talking about like Chicago Cubs fans or whatever, or Boston Red Sox fans. Your heart's broken. We're in the first game. Of- Harrison jumped all in on his on his fandom, and it was, you know, it was a it devastating. Was, it was exciting, and also I was watching a lot of the uh, Miami fans on Twitter. It was just like. It was so disappointing. They were so hyped up. They had waited so long for this game. They looked like they were possibly going to get a win until they scored in the 17th minute. And it's like, okay, we'll settle for a draw. And then Nani just breaks the heart. Uh, For Nani, it was his first game of the year. He missed the first two games in March from a suspension that carried on from last year. But there's hope for Inter-Miami. They're going to play Philadelphia Union 10-30 Tuesday night. And they're going to play Mike's NYCFC on a week from today at 9 a.m. Eastern. And for Orlando, who is struggling entering the tournament, they're going to take on NYFC tomorrow at 8, and then Philadelphia next Monday. So a really good start for Orlando, who's coming to this tournament. I think they'd lost like seven in a row going into it. Gaining some momentum could make a run here in this MLS tournament. 
should be uh, should be some good stuff to watch. We'll be checking uh, back in with you soon to, to hear more about uh, what's going on in the MLS with your new favorite team that's devastating you. Already. Also, last night there was so there were some games that were a little shaky. A lot of teams look really rusty, and then last night we just this thriller between Sporting KC and Minnesota United. Uh, Kerry Shelton scored in the first half for KC. They seemed to be in a good position to win. Minnesota scored to tie it, but it was taken off VAR. And then something you very rarely see in soccer, the goalkeeper for Sporting KC, Tim Mella, got called for a red card day to bring the back of Richard Sanchez, who had not played for the team being on for two years. Minnesota scored two goals in the 92nd minute and 97th minute, including an own goal. Crazy. Just to win the game. It was so exciting. First really great action we've gotten from this tournament, and this tournament's starting to get hot. Harrison Vapnek, thank you so much for uh, your... your <laughs> that was funny. I right? pretty good. Um, Major League Baseball's back, and I'm starting to get more and more worried about baseball, Ira, because it seems like it seems like you're going to have issues with guys getting getting COVID, and it's already happening now with uh, you know one of the best closers in baseball, the world is Chapman. Well, players are every. It's not. It's not like this tidal wave of people pulling out, but it seems like Michael Kopech of White Sox just pulled out. Buster Posey pulled out, uh, and I was reading about this. What people are saying is that you're going to see the pullouts not just now, but in a few games because. In order to get service time, I mean, service times you can be a free agent. So you have a certain amount of years. Yeah. So it's every game is worth 2.78 days. And a lot of people like George Springer, there's a lot of players that are just a few, like even James Paxson is seven more days, Marcus Stroman eight days. He thinks that a lot of people are going to play a few games, get their service time and just say, call it quits. And that's it. So that could be something. It could be something that could keeps going on through it. But yes, Chapman with Corona. But it is exciting to watch them practice and, and see them play. I mean, you're getting the sense that, it, look, you're, people are going to pull out, but you're getting a sense they're going to play, be playing baseball. Baseball is it's yeah it is just so fun to watch and I don't even mind just watching practices and scrimmages I just love baseball that much NBA is going on and it seems like everyone's arriving to this this bubble yeah, I mean, the first big news was the Lakers. I mean, one of the, of course, the favorite to win the title, Rajon Rondo, just broke his right thumb. So he's out six to eight weeks. Um, that's the one thing people are saying, oh, now the players are going to be healthy going to the bubble. I expect a lot of injuries for this comeback in, in terms of they, they remember, these, a lot of these guys have not been working out. They haven't been training. They haven't been in the facilities. Um, you're going to see injuries after injuries. And in, uh, these teams, it, it's just not besides the corona aspect of it, just the injury alone. But uh, it's it just, I think it'll be one of those things. One thing I was looking at at the, at the uh, whatever, the, the games, the first win in the series is that the Milwaukee Bucks almost have a bye in the first round because the Nets have no team and Washington with Bradley Beal pulling out have no team either. So really, one of those is going to be the A seed mm-hmm. and they're just going to, it's going to be like a, a it's going to be an exhibition. So the, yeah. the, the Bucks really don't have to even play a first round series. And that is interesting to think about too, that you are going to see some of these decimated teams like the Nets are, you know, the forefront of that. Is there any other teams you can think of that are going to be at a, a serious disadvantage just health wise going into this? I mean, obviously the Nets have injuries and people pulling out, but I haven't seen another team that looks like they're in that bad of shape. No, but I think it's starting to happen with the Lakers because because you saw with uh, Avery Bradley pulling out now, Rajon Rondo out. I'm saying it's going to be, they brought Quinn Cook in, but they have Dion Waiters, J.R. Smith. I mean, I don't know when I see, when I want to hear Dion Waiters and J.R. Smith as being my, <laughs> like counting on them to win. <laughs> no. They, um, Michael Beasley got signed by the Nets, I think. I mean, they're really dragging people out of the woodwork here <laughs> to, to fill out these rosters. Um, NHL is, I feel like I don't get much information from these guys. They're, they're like the, the secret league, but I haven't heard much, but I, we are set to go. They signed a CBA, which I was surprised about that they signed a collective bargaining agreement. And what I was surprised about, people started criticizing, saying, well, they kept the salary cap the same for three, four years. But as we talked about, most of the revenue comes from gate. We're not going to have a gate this year. You mm-hmm. don't know if you're going to have a gate next year. I think the players did well out of this. Like, I thought this was an excellent thing. I thought they did well. Oh. Harrison, please. 
Oh, no. Also, I was just wanted to say, NBA update, Rob Russell Westbrook was positive for the coronavirus. Uh, his status is in some question right now. But also with the NHL, uh, they were returning to the Olympics after not going in 2018. They have not won gold since 1980, of course. And then we got some dates this week. Uh, the Stanley Cup Finals is going to begin September 22nd and no later than October 4th. The NHL draft will be held on October 9th and the 10th. Free agency is going to start seven days after the Stanley Cup final ends. And training camps begin on November 17th. And the 2021 season 2021 season will begin on December 1st. And this is what, what scared me about hockey was because it was going to end so late. And they kind of had like the, the seven teams that aren't invited are allowed to trade amongst themselves and kind of jockey for next year, whereas the other teams cancel. I thought this was going to be a little weird, Ira, how the offseason and the draft shook out for hockey. For both NBA and yeah, NHL, NBA both, because their seasons are going to have, there could be no offseason. It's going to be like a month offseason. They're going to go back. So I think that yeah, that's going to be one of those questions in terms of what's going to happen. I mean, that's what that's the problem with the, the football is dealing with, because if they go with the college, spring football, how are they going to go back to start the next season? Like even the college players, you're not you're asking people to play spring football and then go back to play fall football. There's mm-hmm. no way without like a month or two off and still play football. No one could play football a whole year straight. Yeah, no, it's going to be uh, we're that's obviously unprecedented times that we're that we're in right now. That That is crazy. I didn't know uh, Russell Westbrook uh, came down with COVID. Sure. So that's uh, some breaking news here on Iron Sports. Um, let's have a little college football, because this is another like I'm starting to get worried here, Ira, because all. All these conferences are either changing the rules or saying not playing altogether, like the Ivy League. What do you think? Well, the Ivy League and the Patriot League canceled all, so they're not playing at all the fall, so they might play in the spring. But the Big Ten and the Pac-10 said no conference games only. So games like Michigan versus Washington, Michigan State, Miami, Minnesota was playing FAU. That's gone. All the Notre Dame games, Wisconsin, Notre Dame, USC, Notre Dame, Stanford, Notre Dame is out. And the big game, USC, Alabama, that was excited for, that's going to be gone. So that that's major in terms of, and you're expecting the ACC. Now, the question is, are these other leagues going to do the same thing? There's mm-hmm. three other leagues, the ACC, the Big 12, or the SEC. Well, they decide to do conference games only. So you're expecting the Big 10 would only play 10 games, and that's their season. But there's, there's an issue. I mean, it, it seems like it's harder. It's much. It's really difficult. Everybody, they're, they're, the travel, the different states, uh, different how these are college kids, a lot of things are looking against college I don't think there's going to be college football. And, and, and that's a big part of it, that they are kids. You know, this isn't guys making millions of dollars that are like, you know, I'm taking a calculated risk here. It's little kids, and they, they shouldn't have to be forced to do anything that they don't want to. Do you think that this whole or- ordeal finally gets Notre Dame into a conference? Because this is going to mess everything up for Notre Dame. Not being in a conference, they don't really have anybody to play well, when they go conference. For this year, they'll probably go the ACC. They already play four ACC games. They'll probably have to do ACC if they play it. But then a lot of people said, well, then how are they going to do the playoffs and how are they going to know who what teams are? Well, people are <laughs> we're still going to have controversy if we played each other or not played each other. So if they're going to do the college football playoff, trust me, they're still, they'll just put four SEC teams in and then they'll call it a <laughs> day. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Maybe Oklahoma gets a uh, an <laughs> Entry. But uh, yeah, we know how that's going to shake out. And uh, speaking of shaking out, Redskins came out today and said that they're no longer going to be the Redskins. Yes, yeah, so we talked about that last week and they're coming up with names. Uh, it's amazing they've kept, they said there's trademark issues why it hasn't come out what the new name will be. And Some, A realtor in Alexandria, Virginia copyrighted every name. That they, that they were that they were choosing over. So it's kind of funny how that worked out. They might get uh, set back a little bit there. I actually have some tri- uh, quick trivia. Do you know the last NFL team to change their name? The Oilers to the Titans? Yep. And you know, take a wild guess who was before that? I'd be very impressed if you got this. I have no idea. It was the New York Titans became the New York Jets in 1963. (laughs) 
<laughs> Good stuff here from Harrison. Um, I do. I was actually I was living in Nashville when the Titans moved, when the Oilers moved and they played in Memphis for a year. I got to see the Giants play in Memphis. It was uh, an interesting time, but uh, man, it was it was good stuff. Uh, so, what do you think is going to happen here? I, I like I said, someone <laughs> copyrighted all the potential names, which is pretty smart. I think that's what probably Daniel Snyder's negotiating with him right now for whatever <laughs> name it would have to be. Um, the, the Chicago Blackhawks did come out and say that they will not change their name from the Blackhawks. I'm interested to see how the Indians go and, you know, if the rest of these teams do end up changing their name, what do you think uh, with, with the Indians? Um, I think the Indians possibly, they've been mentioning that they might. I don't, the Atlanta Braves just issued a statement that they're not changing the name, but uh, but they're they're um, looking at the Tomahawk chop in terms of how they're going to analyze and being, but like we're now down here in Florida, Florida State. Now the Seminole Nation and Florida State, they, they're, again, they're very much working with them. This isn't like Florida State uses Seminoles. The Seminoles are involved with it yeah. in terms of the, in terms of business and advertising it's publicity, and publicity and, and working with it and the studies program. I mean, in terms of how Florida State does with the Seminole, with the Seminole Nation, there, we, you know, we could bring someone on to talk about it, but they're totally, there's people that analyze everything Florida State does to make sure it's, it's in a classy fashion and, and those things. So um, I'd be very interested in terms of seeing what, what goes on with this. Let's go to Craig Hodges here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're talking to Craig Hodges, author of Long Shot, The Triumph and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Uh, Craig, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. No problem. Nice to have you. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's cool to get a chance to uh, speak across the airways. Hope everybody is doing well during this time, and God bless everybody, man. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, you really, on the forefront, you wrote this book a couple years ago. It's going to come out in, I think, a month or two in paperback, and it's it's like a must-read. But you cover issues about social justice, the work you did with the NBA Union, the fact that you were one of the greatest shooters of all time. Uh, you were an NBA champion on one of those famous teams of all time with the Jordan Bulls. And uh, so it's pretty, it's really, you really cover, you, you would think it's it's like maybe uh, the war and peace in terms of what you have to cover your entire life in your book. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. You know, and it's something that, you know, writing has always been something I love doing, and I just thought it was time for me to get published. Uh, I'm doing, I have two two books right now that I'm working on, one basketball and one for social justice. But the main thing is was uh, basically writing and, and getting, you know, people talk about what your life is like. People speculate on what happened when we went to the White House. And I just felt it was time that I just sit down and take the time. It took me 18 months to actually the whole project and get it together so it was um it was love and doing it and then at the same time i didn't realize the impact that it would have after it was done yeah, and then you talk about being social justice you were involved in it when you were in elementary school i mean you felt like there was a, a famous doctor named dr charles gavin in chicago yeah, grew right. up in chicago and you led the move to change the school your school's name it was benjamin franklin it's not a, a controversial name but you thought it was a, a great to honor dr charles gavin for the name of the school and as an elementary student you actually led that fight yeah and then, you know and that was the part that we were taught early then is that you have you have energy and the energy that you utilize in life can be positive or negative. And we were taught young to, you know, love the community that you came from and honor the heroes from the community. And Dr. Dr. Gavin was, you know, the world's foremost bone specialist at one time. And, you know, coming from our community, he did you know, house calls without asking anybody for money. So he was really that type of doctor. So we felt it. We were not just me, but my classmates, all of us, we... Um, you know, we were taught that we can make decisions, and we petitioned, and we got it done, man. So it was a blessing, and it was a, it was a learning lesson for me and as far as um, 
the power of the whole and not just yourself individually. I was surprised when I read your book. I mean, you had this a 10-year NBA career, but you could have been a tennis player. Now, we're down here in West Palm Beach, and we have Venus and Serena living <laughs> a, a few miles away. Coco Golf is yeah, about yeah. a half an hour down in yeah, Delray. Yeah. I mean, your, your idol was a Arthur Ashe. I don't know why you didn't just you know, go be in tennis and compete in the, you know, on the circuit. Well, you know, for me, it's one of those things where you have a passion, and, and baseball was the initial one, man. It was, you know, my, my people played tennis, and we would play tennis in the summers here in Chicago almost every evening. So it became a thing that I got pretty good at at the time. I was probably 9, 10, or 11, you know, and I played, you know, I was probably a sophomore in high school. But basketball really drew me to it in as far as my uncle played it, and then my uncle taught me how to play it, and they taught me, you know, the nuances of the game. And it was something that, that I was passionate about, and it was something that wasn't hard for me to train for. You know, I love the training aspect of it, and you know, but the tennis part of it, Arthur Ashe was my main, one of my main um, mentors from afar when I was growing up. And as far as his discipline and his thought, and some of the stuff that he had to go through from a social justice end, it struck me. And I don't think I've ever talked to anyone who's had as many famous coaches. I mean, from and it started in high school. So you said your coach is Steve Fisher. Steve Fisher. Steve Fisher, yeah, who went on, went on to Michigan, won a national title there, and then went on to San Diego right. State, and then to Tex Winter, to Paul Silas, to Phil Jackson. Exactly. <laughs> it's just on That's Don it. Nelson. And, you know, and I look at it on the same side on the educational level, man. I've had great mentors from, you know, from the time I was in elementary school with my aunts and my... <laughs> You know, my sister who taught me how to read and write early. My uncle taught me how to hoop early and play the sport. So I've been, I've had great tutors, man. And that just continued uh, when I got to Richie's, like you say, Steve Fisher. And he went on to do his thing up in Michigan and on to San Diego State. And to have Tex Winter, who to me is probably the brightest mind that, that basketball and ball may have ever produced, uh, Lord rest his soul. But I was blessed to have had him as a mentor at 18 and be able to learn the, the real truth of the game and then be able to go to go to a professional level and, and be with a Hall of Famer like Paul Silas and, you know, and, and carries on. Don Nelson, Jimmy Lynham, Cotton Fitzsimmons, you know what I mean, Doug Collins, Bill Jackson. I just laugh when I think about it, you know, that when you come into a game, you never you never think that you would have an opportunity to meet some of the some of the people that you look to when you were younger growing up and to be able to actually sit, communicate with them and, you know, to be on the staff with Kareem Abdul Dubar when we were with the Lakers, it was it, it was I just been it's just been a cool ride for me, man. So you went to Long from Chicago to Long Beach State. I can understand that clearly the weather for the weather alone, but yeah, you no but and for Tex Winter. So you actually studied under the master. So we talk about triangle. You are now like probably you probably know about the triangle more than anyone because you played under it yeah, for, for Tex so long. So yeah. could you could you explain the triangle a little? We hear the name triangle. Maybe as the master of the triangle, you could now explain yeah. it to people. Well, I think the biggest part of it is, uh, you know, when I look at, you know, the rank and file of the teams in the NBA, probably five or six teams could be championship contenders if they use the triangle. But, um, they don't, they don't know what it is. They haven't, they haven't been prepped on it. Uh, so it's a, it's a different monster, man. So, but the biggest part is just, uh, it's ball movement, spacing. And, um, you know, player movement. And I think that's the biggest part that, 
a lot of teams aren't utilizing now because it's a positionless game. Right, right. And so then for me, for me, when I look at you know just our new our um, our rise with Chicago, the ability for us to rise, it was you know going from uh, Dell Collins who was more of a isolation. Let's see where we can get an advantage as opposed to let's move the ball and get the advantage, and that and that's what Texas is about. And when Phil picked it up, I told guys, I said, the difference in what we're going to do now compared to what we've done in the past is our defensive energy is going to pick up the way because everybody's going to get touches with the basketball. Right, get everybody involved, and then they're going to play. You know, we saw from the last dance, last dance, which we'll get into. But when you went, you're, first, you're drafted at Long Beach State. You go to uh, the San Diego Clippers under Paul Silas, and I liked how Bill Bill Walton. I mean, again, you just from Bill to, to Kareem to everyone, he's the one who encouraged you because he saw how much you read and was involved, and he encouraged you. To, they made you the the union rep as a rookie, which is un, I don't unheard of, yeah. I think, before or after. Yeah, and it was it was funny, you know, Bill Bill and I it was it was pretty initially we had like a uh, antagonistic type relationship because Bill is Bill can be a bully at times on the court as far as uh, he he put that veteran stuff on you and the like and, and just to see it compared to you know, you see it from afar but you know, Bill when first day of practice, Bill was talking to me about um shagging balls for him while he shot around. And I was like, no way, man. I'm <laughs> down here working on my game. So he kept calling me Rook. Hey, Rook. Hey, Rook. And I'm like, hey, my mom made me Craig. <laughs> if you want to let me call me Craig, so I'm down there shooting. And he turns around. He's like, I turn around finally like, hey, man, my mom made me Craig, man. He was like, you know what? I like that. I like that. So. Almost from that point on, man, it became a thing where, you know, and he asked me what I studied in school, and I told him I studied black history. And, he, you know, he's a history buff himself. So we struck it off, man, and our social, you know, our social conversations was cool, man. I learned a lot from Bill, especially from the standpoint of understanding, you know, the, the connection between basketball players and basketball management. And he told me right away that he was going to teach me you know, the importance of, as a player, to always remain loyal to the player side of things, even if I became a coach or moved up into the game on the other side of it, always side was with the players because that's the product. And, you know, he put me he put me in charge of uh, of the players' union in as far as being the ref. And he told me, yeah, you go handle it. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> Didn't have a clue or none of it. And then when I came back, he's like, you learned anything? I was like, yeah, man, I learned that I didn't know nothing, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, Bill is, is still a friend of mine, and I was blessed to be able to, you know, see Luke and his brother grow up, you know, and then to see Luke with the success that he had with us as champions with the Lakers and then to go on and do what he did and go to state it's just been cool for him, man. And now with Sacramento. You know, in a secret, a little, a team that people don't talk about. You, you were traded to the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, right. And that year in 85, you went, 36 and 5 at home, and you really could. That could a right. team could, and you were starting the starting two guard the whole year with Sidney Moncrief. Uh, that team could right. have won the title that year. Yeah, and then, you know, our, our biggest hump was Boston, man. And, and it was always, we would always laugh as, as players after we get defeated by Boston and be like, man, if Nelly only coached when we went to Boston Garden, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it was a joke that Nelly, wouldn't, Nelly didn't want to beat Red Arbeck on his home court. 
But man, you know that that's just one of those things. They the, the talent that they had on those teams, man. You know, it was it's similar to you know when MJ finally figured it out with our squad. It was hard for anybody during that era to get a chance to win a championship because they had to come through us. And during that period of time, Boston was the same way, man. You know, you think about their front line of just Parrish, McHale, and Bird. You know, that in itself was something like, man, how can we stop the guards from getting the ball down court to get it to them? <laughs> you know, because once they got it, it was over, man. So then you, and you took a detour in Phoenix for a little bit, but then you've got, I guess, the, your dream team, which is to come back to Chicago, come back to your hometown, and you're playing on this team. You grew up, I think you're, you're a fan of Norm Van Leer, who actually went to St. Francis where, around where I lived. Um, yes, yes. But, um, and you got to come in there right with Jordan and everything at the beginning, and that's why, you know, we watched The Last Dance on TV, so that just, to be yeah. there, but you spell out in the book about exactly how hard, it wasn't like just, it happened it, with, with Jordan. It's like, it was that process to go from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson, the process to be able to become that good a team. Right, and I think that's that's one of the things that I felt the last dance kind of missed in, um, in giving credence to is that, you know, the, the import of coaching, the ability to have a system that fits the players and is able to function in a way that's seamless, and I think that was the biggest part of the transit was how do we have to, how do we implement the system? And that's why I feel so blessed I've had Tex in college that when it came time for the transition from Doug to Phil, you know, it was Tex and I standing at half court and we going through the whole system with the guys standing, standing on the baseline. And for me, it was a thing where, you know, here I am teaching Michael Jordan. You know? <laughs> and none of that is, none of that is given in the, in, in the last dance, nor is it, nor is it, um, Consider when you think about, you know, just the, the amount of success that the Bulls have, how much of it is getting, given to Phil Jackson as Zen master or Michael's uh, tenacity. When I think, you know, when you look at what we were able to accomplish, there was a team all the way from the front office all the way to the fans and like. So I look at our system that we had, it was a perfect, you know, quote-unquote perfect storm that the players were ready to receive a system that was conducive to the growth of all the players. Right, and, I, you know, certainly the shot against the Cavaliers uh, over Jordan, over Craig Elo, but you you had a big role in that, and you wrote in your book how you actually gave up the back door to Elo on the play before. Oh, oh man, you know, and the, and the crazy part about it was, uh, you know, it, it became a thing where Michael told me when we coming back to the timeout after Elo had scored the bucket, he was like, don't worry about it, Hodge, I got you. And I'm over there kicking myself for letting him get a bucket and that kind of thing. And come to find out, he, he did just what he said. And then got the locker room out. He was like, tell him, Hodge, tell him what I told you, man. Tell him, tell him. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, he told me after I gave up that back door that he was going to bail me out. And he did. And then you went through the year when after they fired Collins and then Phil became the coach. And, and I guess that's what you just said is you're just you're just you bonded with him. He let you be yourself. He, he, he appreciated the fact that you were intelligent. You read books because, you know, he was handing books out to players. So I think that bond between you and Phil was pretty important in terms of how the Bulls were able to develop as a team. Uh, no doubt about it. And I think, you know, it continues, man. You know, I great respect and admiration for Phil. And I think it's likewise, man, that. You know, he understood, and he understands that in order to be a conscious person, you have to be a reader, 
and I think that's what he did. Is he got more guys to think in terms of the whole as opposed to self on a lot of occasions. You know, Michael would do his thing, but that was that was the, the air of, of MJ. You know, so but for the whole, and even at times with Michael, and you know, Bill would Bill would do what he needed to do to make sure that MJ felt the discipline of you know you part of a group and. That's one of the greatest parts of when I look at the whole thing is that Phil Jackson, his ability to manage people is unlike anything I've ever seen to realize what someone's strengths and weaknesses are and allow everyone to operate in their strengths. And if we all operate at that point and, and covering up each other's weaknesses, then it's going to be hard for anybody to beat us. And then you talk you, in the last dance. They covered about how if they lost to the Pistons in, in Game Seven, they started the Breakfast Club. Everybody's lifting weights, and and you said, "I don't want to lift any weights. I, I want to keep my shot. I just shot more. I didn't, I didn't want to lift." And, right. and that's what you did. You just right. kept getting better and better and better. Yeah, and that and you know that's the thing, man, is knowing who you are. And one fit, one uh, size doesn't fit all. And I think it's one of those things where you have to calibrate and and work to see what what works for you and how that can fit into making the team better. And for me, it was one of those things where I just trained on, you know, my legs and, and my, you know, conditioning. But for me, strengthening more, more, I didn't need more bulk, man. And, and you know, some guys did, and some guys wanted like that and, and played in that way. But for me, it was just my, what I preferred for for me. And I think that's that's what it is today. I think a lot of, a lot of young folks have an idea that this thing is just add water, <laughs> you know, but it's more to it. It's more to be able to, you know, learn from every time you go out uh, in a practice situation or in a workout situation that you're gaining, you're gaining experience from every time you, you're uh, out there. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about Scotty and Horace. You know, they kept it lighthearted for us as a squad at the same time when it came to putting their thinking caps on that, at times when it wasn't about uh, being funny, it was about business. They were able to do that, and they grew as um, to be mature champions. And I liked how you covered it. And I don't think the last dance did a good job on this. Was that the ninety ninety one season when they when you beat the Lakers in the finals? I mean, that you had Magic, you had Michael. It was you know through the scene of everything. And and at that point, we look back and say, well, they got injured later in the series. But you point out that it was close. I mean, you lost that first game, and there was a chance that you could have lost that series. And 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 if the Lakers would have stayed healthy, then maybe Michael Jordan doesn't win, go six for six. So that was you. You spelled right. that out, and and also you talked in your book about how you met Jim Brown. You had a meeting with Jim Brown during that in L. So was- oh, man. Uh, and that's what I say, man. You know, once again, um, I've been blessed, man, to be able to, to meet a lot of people who were inspirational parts of my life that they didn't know Craig Hodges from a hole in the ground. So it was <laughs> one of those things where, you know, to get a chance to meet Jim Brown during our championship run and, and to get, you know, wisdom from him and be able to share that wisdom with my teammates, man, that, that's, you know, that's prized possession for me even like now. I'm still getting a chance to meet people who meant a lot to me growing up. I I have a friendship now with Dr. John Carlos, who I saw in the 68 Olympics when I was a little boy. And for him to, you know, befriend me now and call me and and us communicate about the stuff that's going on today and and how we can build a coalition to, to, you know, bring it to, bring racism to a close, man, that's something that's powerful and I feel great that you know people that I've looked at from afar now people that I'm cool with man so basketball has done a lot for me and 
like you know, when I look at that championship in, in L.A., the Lakers, you know, they they had, like you say, had a chance to beat us. But for us, we knew after the first game that we had taken their best punch and that all we had to do was uh, stay focused on how we play basketball and don't get caught up into it being a we're in the championship. But more importantly, let us go out and do what we're capable of doing on a daily basis like we've been doing. We're talking to Craig Hodges, uh, wrote the book Long Shot, The Triumph and Struggles of, the NBA, of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Uh, it's going to be out. You can order it on paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Kindle. I wrote my, read my book on Kindle this weekend, so it's good. A great, great book. Uh, but on in 1991-92, that's when you became almost a de facto assistant coach because, and some people that even said the last dance, that might be the best team. And people think about the second team that won the 72 games, but a lot of people think that 91-92 team could have been the best of the Jordan's teams. Yeah, and I, I tell people, you know, it's one thing to be on even the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth championship. Okay, that's cool, but to get over the hump of beating Detroit, get over the hump of beating Cleveland, get over the hump of being able to mentally prepare yourselves to where you're not concerned with your opponent, you're concerned with making sure you're on top of the execution of what this game plan is. And I think our 1991 team was able to galvanize ourselves in a, in a certain disciplined way that, that we grew from all of the herd of losses. And that in that growth, we were able to see how to go about getting it done. And, and in that, we were able to say, okay, MJ does this, Scotty does this, Bill does this. And I tell people all the time that we would not have won the championship without Bill Cartwright and his ability to hold down our paint and that, he was that force that was, you know, he was a quiet leader, and but very impactful. And that during during the time that we were able to win, I think it was one of those things that, you know, we all put our egos to the side, even MJ. You know, there would be times when, you know, people aren't going to see what's going on in practice, but I can tell you it wasn't always him bashing somebody. Sometimes it was people pulling them to the side and letting them know, hey, man, if you slipped this cut right here, and this things can happen for you, and he didn't see it. So, you know, we're able to, we were able to see one another's uh, blind spots and be able to communicate in a way where it wasn't considered to be uh, criticism, but it was all meant for us to grow as a unit, and we were able to do it and, and win. So I think our 91 championship could probably beat any team that's ever won. That's my <laughs> no, that's a lot of people think that. And then I just want to talk about your shooting a little bit. We just had Rod Crew on last week about about hitting. Oh, yeah. and, and it was great to have yeah. Rod talk about uh, his book out and about how he sees the ball. And then uh, whether you describe your shooting, how you learned to have the, the arch in the ball, text winners. I mean, the first thing that, you know I said is you said there's like two balls going in a hoop. You actually put two balls in next to each other. They actually could go through. And that's why you started with the arch. Exactly. And uh, just how you refined your shooting to become a 40% three-point shooter and one of the greatest shooters yeah. in NBA history. Yeah, for me, you know, and, and kudos to Rod Carew, man. When I used to play baseball, he was one of the brothers I was watching. Watch how he would change his stance compared <laughs> to the pitcher and how he had studied every pitcher in the league and knew where the pitchers were going to come. So he's going to make a stance this way so he could hit opposite field or he could pull it down the line. And just to have the, the mastery of being able to have something coming at you 90 miles per hour and be able to take this instrument and, and put it where you want it, man, is something powerful. And the same thing for me when, when I think in terms of basketball is just being able to, uh, you're shooting enough to where you know 
what's going on with your shot. You know, for me, it was to be able to know that when I when I do certain things, the results are going to be 98% of the time. So, and that, that's the biggest part um, of, of shooting. Steph Curry and, and Ray Allen, they all tell you the same thing, that it's, uh, it's a certain amount of training that you do and you're working towards perfection, not that you're ever going to get it, but you're working towards perfecting the mechanics of your shot, perfecting, you know, the different release points from the different angles, from the different distances and the like, to know that you know why your ball goes in the basket. And that's one of the biggest things that for me is to be able to teach that now to young people who want to learn how to play the game and to, to get them to know that it's not a magic trick when your ball goes in. It's something that you can really work on and, and become a better shooter to the point where you can become um, almost a master at it, man. <laughs> and then the three-point shooting, if you ask anybody, I mean, the three-point shooting contest at the NBA All-Star Game now, I think, totally dwarfs the dunk contest. I mean, the dunk, every dunk's been done. You don't have whatever. But when you, right, and, right, right. <laughs> and you were there at the beginning. I mean, you, 86, 87, 8, yeah. you're losing to Larry Bird in the finals. So you're, those years. Yeah. And then... The one then you won your first title on ninety, and I just got to tell you, you compete against Larry Bird, Reggie Miller, Mark Price, so three of the best shooters of all time, and also you had to beat Michael right. Jordan in the first round. So the, talk right. about talk about your ability to win. And not only do you win ninety, you win in ninety one and then ninety two. Yeah, you know, and it was it was funny because um, the way that I approached the contest when I lost was totally different than the way I approached it when I won. Uh, when I approached it when I lost, I, t- I came into the weekend excited about being in the shooting contest. And then when I stopped and reflected on my losses, I was like, nah, you got to take this as a game. So I took it. I went into the next competition as it being a game situation, and all I had to do today was just catch the ball and shoot it. I didn't have to chase Isaiah. I didn't have to try to stop Benny Johnson. All I had to do is just bring this ball out of the rack and, and my mindset was that every time I pulled out pulled the ball out of the rack there was a pass coming to me and I was just catching and shooting it and you know being able to get my mind state even to when I came into whatever city it was in I came in and I went to my hotel you know like it was a game as opposed to it being a festive weekend and I found success in that. What do you think about the three people shooting? I mean, I go to high school basketball games now, and I know you've coached in high school basketball yourself. It just It's like every position. They're not running a dish. They shoot threes. You have kids that are shooting 15% from threes firing up. And then you see it also in college, too. It just seems to be – I mean, you prided yourself on 40%, your accuracy. It doesn't right. – it seems like now kids don't care what their accuracy is. Right. And then, see, and I think that's the difference in when we played the game, we played the game in a practical – with a practical, certain practical value. When I watch it today, there's really no practical value in it being five positions. There is no, it's a positionless game. And like you say, the analytics have taken the game over from the standpoint of three is more than two. So now you have everybody want to come down and launch. So I look at seven footers who are, instead of running to the basket or setting a pick and rolling to the basket, they're pick, picking and popping to the three point line. And it's it's funny to me when I look at it, and it's just the it's the cycles that the game goes through. You know, you go through that cycle of the big man being dominant, then it became the small forward and two guards, and now you know becoming the small man with the three and Steph Curry. So it's it's cycles, and hopefully it'll get back to that point to where positions really mean something. You can see, you know, you can see more more of a 
cooperative situation as opposed to it being superstar dominated, uh, top loaded. You may have two or three great players on the team, and you know the rest of the guys are just basically trying to get them off. And I think you know that's not the way the game should be played. So uh, it was. So 1992 comes. You win the title. You, I was great in your book that you went after instead of celebrating at the clubs and the bars. You actually took all those extra shirts you had and went to all the midnight right. basketball and handed them out to the kids. Which I'm sure to get a Chicago Bull champion, one of the players, star players <laughs> of the team, in yeah. the middle at midnight to hand out. That'd be awesome. But then right. you you didn't go back to the Bulls and you didn't go back to and you couldn't. And here you're 32 years old. You're one of the best shooters in the league. And you talked about how right. you know unfortunately your stance on so social justice like the rest of the NBA for the rest of your career. Yeah, it was crazy, man, to, to know that you have a, you have a blessing in as far as a gift is concerned and the talent. And with this talent, you know, you're capable of doing some things, not only for your family, but for the community. And not to have that opportunity and, and for it to happen the way that it did, you know, it, it was it was crazy, man, just to, just to know that it wasn't about me not being able to play anymore, but it was more about the fact that I want to speak out on the condition of my people. And to have that be a problem or be an issue and be able to stop me from earning a living, that's totally unfair, man. So when I look at what Colin Kaepernick has done and what he's been able to do, I applaud him, man. And, and it, it's good, man, that, you know, justice and kind of righteous conduct is starting to be applauded and, and being seen for what it's really for. I mean, you were criticized, you were, there were people who had problems with you, but not just because you're social justice, but also your union, is a, union issues. I mean, you fought for things that seem so minor today, but are important, the pension issues and for right. veteran players, and the ages didn't like that. And so, and, and you know, yeah. right now, the players are probably thanking you for fighting for these pension things that you're able to put in place. Yeah, you know, and then during that period of time, it was one of those things where most of the players were truly apolitical in the stances that they would take uh, because of endorsements and trying to get another contract or what have you. But once again, the way I was raised is that we were taught early in life that we have to speak up on the condition of black people where we, wherever we find them. And at the same time, when you're in the, when you're in the position and you spotlight like the professional realm, then you have more you have more responsibility. And, you know, when you look at what was going on in the late 70s with the NBA, uh, it was a perfect storm when Magic and Bird came into the league because at that point in time, the NBA was basically all black, and they were losing sponsorship. They weren't having any uh, – they weren't getting uh, – pop- the, the stands weren't populated by white people. So they had to find a way – uh, to get that to happen, and Bird and Magic was the perfect storm for that happening. And now you had the first time when players were really being branded in the league with endorsements, and everything kind of rolled off of that. So the players after that remained somewhat silent in order to promote the league in a way that was palatable, where it wasn't any really social justice or social or civil rights issues going on, even though there were the players. Uh, took somewhat of a silent approach to it in order to promote the league. We're talking to Craig Hodges, author of Long Shot, The Triumph and Struggles of the NBA Freedom Fighter on 95.9, 106.9, Iron Sports. And then you did get a chance to coach in the NBA a little for six years for the Lakers. And you got the experience of working with Kareem and Kobe. Okay. And, I mean, to, you know, such, you know, people with such vision. And, and it must have been great just to spending time and, and talking about life and basketball with those guys. 
Oh, man, you know, when I, I tell people when I was with the Lakers, that was perhaps one of my greatest, uh, one of the coolest points in as far as uh, basketball was concerned on both the professional level and just uh, the, to the basketball level to, to go in and work with Kobe Bryant every day for six years and Derek Fisher, Lamar Odom, and, and the brotherhood, man. It was, it was just, it was a cool opportunity for me to share my experience both with the Triangle and Kobe, Kobe's main thing, he was kicking my brain about MJ all the time. <laughs> and I found, I found it, uh, you know, I found it somewhat amusing at times because he, he had, uh, studied, he had studied MJ so much that he, he knew, he had certain nuances about him that he had incorporated into his game. But to me, it would be great, you know, Lord rest his soul, but it would have been great to see what his position would have been right now on whether or not players should be playing. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the the bubble and the players and all the issues that that come on? What is your opinion about well, them coming back? You know, I, it's uh, to me it's a, really a no brainer. We shouldn't be playing. It's um, you know it's about once again money trumps money trumps people. No pun intended. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? But but it does that that right now we're in a we're at a point where historically we understand the oppression that has gone on, and then we what we see. The brutality that is that has been heaped upon our people in cities across America, and we as athletes have an opportunity for the first time. Truly, you know, when I look back at the brothers of '68 Olympics in '91 with myself and Meg Mood and the brothers and us standing on a position where these brothers have a chance to really uh, make some traction in as far as ownership is concerned. That you know, when you have 30 billionaire white men asking. 29, 30-year-old black man, hey, we need y'all. <laughs> that, that's something that's not happened in our history in that we have a certain weight and position and, that we could carry. But once again, I think we act, we act to, the, um, to the money as opposed to the spiritual part of it. But we'll see what, what happens. I don't think they're going to be able to play because every day more and more people are going to get it and you're not going to be able to have a season. Because what is it going to look like if that the winner of the, of the championship was basically the, the team that had the less people who got Corona, you know. So it's going to be it's going to be ugly, man. It's ugly already, and I think that as a nation, with the quarantine and everything, it's given a lot of people a chance to sit down and look at things for what they truly are, and that you know a lot of people see the injustices that have gone on, and you know they want to be a part in in, in the solution to it, and I think the NBA and consider themselves the most woke league in professional sports, I think they really need to take a look at themselves and putting players in harm's way. And what is it going to take to shut it down? For, for how many how many players have to test positive or heaven forbid somebody else to pass away? Right. I mean, you talk about how your platform at basketball allows you so much of a voice. And, and I loved in your book how you talked when you met with Nelson Mandela. And here you are, you're meeting one of your idols, Nelson Mandela. And he knew who you were, watched your games, everything about yeah, that. Man. It was talking moves. And that was so crazy. That was so crazy. So um, when, he, when, when Mandela came to Chicago, um, Operation Push asked me to come and, and be a part of it. And so when I got there, I had no clue. When I seen him walk in, you know, our eyes contacted me. He broke into a smile, and I broke into a smile, you know. So I'm just thinking he gave me as a brother. He was like, so where we sat, I sat right next to him for lunch. 
<laughs> so we sitting there like, man, bro, this is such a, I can't even believe I'm sitting there. He was like, I can't believe I'm sitting there next to you. I'm like, what? He's like, you know, people who watch basketball in South Africa, that that blew my gasket, man. I was like, yeah, all right, man, it's cool. <laughs> that, that was cool to know that even from afar that a lot of times you never know the impact. And I know the impact that we had as a, as a championship squad, but I didn't know that. You know, Nelson Mandela actually knew Craig Hodges was. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, Craig, so the book, so you're working on two other books, and but you have mm-hmm. this book, the Longshot book, is going to be out. Am I correct? It's going to be out in paperback because I saw on Barnes & Noble you could order it, and it's like on, it's on order. It's coming out in a month or two, correct? Right. It should be. Actually, it should be out hopefully before the month is out. Uh, I'm, you know, like once again, man, when I wrote it, I didn't realize what, you know, what happened. Yeah, once it's published and all of that, and you see it take a life of its own, even to the point where now it's an option for a documentary and, and feature film. So, I, man, it's been cool, man. So I just continue to keep my nose to the grindstone, man, and as far as knowing that it's about human rights and that we have to stand up for those who are less fortunate at every point in time, man. And we can't, we can't be silent because silence is violence. Right, right. And, and, and the good thing is that, you know, you write the, the, the book is, we have to learn and educate and you write a book that is very, it's very educational and it covers your life and your ups and your downs. And it's something that I think everyone right. would find enjoyable to read. And as I said, you cover so many bases from shoot, from your shooting to the, the bulls to social justice, everything. It's pretty, and you've, and right. you've encountered so many amazing people in your life. I mean, every person who's and anybody in basketball has touched your life. So that was pretty cool about this. Yeah, man. And, and you know, and that's, that's the, that's the cool part. And I tell young folks, man, and I grew up in the, I grew up in the projects in Chicago Heights, at a place where a lot of people say, you know, what good can come up out of here? How you going, you know, with you know, and there's a lot of hopelessness, you know, where people are concerned now. But I tell people, you'd be surprised what can happen in your life if you study hard and and keep your nose to the grindstone. And as far as helping people as opposed to hurting people, do no harm, and you'd be surprised what will happen in your life. Great words, great words. Um, we've been talking to Craig Hodges, Longshot, Triumph of Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Thanks a lot, Craig, for coming on. We'd love to have you on again uh, for your next book. But you. thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Peace, 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 peace. Craig Hodges here on Ira on Sports. Great interview. So, Ira, what do you got planned for this week? Well, I told you, I can't wait for the Memorial. We got Tiger <laughs> playing in a golf tournament. Finally, this is his first time back. So I'm pumped for Tiger. I'm pumped for oh, Bruce yes. Brooks Kepka. I'm pumped for everything. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then there's some good soccer matches, and uh, there's some NASCAR, and we go from there. And then so, but I'm, but I really, I think this week, what I'm hoping for is I think this Memorial is going to be one of those golf tournaments where you can watch it, enjoy it, and not have five thousand other sports on. But coming in soon, it's going to be the baseball, the basketball, and the hockey starting. Well, we are out of time though. On behalf of Ira, Mike, let's talk next. Monday night. It's Iron Sports.